Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 77, Taking Flight in Your New Airplane. So every builder is going to get to the point where they finish the actual construction. They've gone through all the effort, all the hard work of getting it finished, inspected, and ready to fly. And then they need to put a little work in on themselves as they get ready to actually perform that first flight in their airplane. Now, we're not talking necessarily about the mechanics of doing a maiden flight on a new home build. That's maybe a small piece of it. We're talking about you as the builder getting ready to fly your new airplane. This might apply to someone who's purchased one and transitioning in that new that new plane also. So we're going to talk to a couple of builders who've recently gone through this, having just finished their planes, and uh, they have some interesting perspectives looking back at their own tr- transitions. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic 1374. Joining me once again, my good flying buddy, Gary Motley. Gary, what you been up to? Well, unfortunately, not a excessive amount of flying as you probably have known most of the western part of the united states has numerous uh, forest fires uh, the smoke's been pretty thick out here visibility probably has been averaging all six or eight miles many times in the metro area so it just has not been high on my uh, list of uh, things to do lately uh, i suspect much of that smoke has, has drifted across the rest of the country too even heard some reports that uh, the california smoke was reaching as far as europe so that's been kind of like my style. I've been a little bit more ground-based on my activities. And I've done a little bit of flying, but it's been pretty much just an hour, pretty much around the patch just to get some engine oil warmed up and keep me from getting too rusty. Yeah, we, we've had that smoke over here. It's um, it's interesting because when the wind shifts, you almost forget it. it's not there. You know, we're a ways away from the fires too, not like you guys. But when the wind starts coming out of the north or back out of the, the northwest, uh, boy, that smoke just makes a big old arc across the top of the United States and comes right on back into the Midwest. And uh, it's been like that the last few days. Yeah. Well, hopefully this stuff will clear up soon. I just yeah. don't know when. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is the best time. You know, it's cool and plane performs well and the scenery is interesting and you got to take advantage of it while it's here. Well, right. you can see the scenery. <laughs> All right. Good deal. Well, uh, John Gillis and Mike Needenthal are both out uh, doing other stuff. Uh, I think John said something about helping Carl go pick up a new airplane. Carl's got a problem buying airplanes. Apparently, he's not over it yet. So we'll hear from them next time, I suppose. Our guests this time are, again, two builders who are very active on the SonicsBuilders.net forum. And that's Wes Regal and Billy Kirshner. So Wes is in Texas. He recently completed 1X number 89. And I think uh, at last count, Wes, you posted that you had about 15 hours on your plane. So Wes, welcome. Thanks for spending a little bit of time talking with us. Yeah, yeah I have about uh, 16 now. So I flew it a little bit yesterday. And, uh, so I'm building time. Good. That's the whole goal. You know, that's why you put all the sweat equity in is 
to start watching the Hobbs meter start ticking up. And also, uh, Billy Kirchner, and Billy is joining us from Pennsylvania, and he did a Sonics the hard way. He plans built, built everything himself, including his Corvair conversion, and uh, just recently flew that just a couple weeks ago. So, Billy, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. Um, it's been an adventure. I should have been I should have been flying the whole time I was building. Uh, it's 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 very scary. Well, and, and we've talked about that previously. You know, you tend to get pretty rusty. You know, your mind is in building mode, and you kind of have to pull yourself out and and make the transition back into flying mode. And sometimes uh, you kind of know that, but it doesn't really make sense until you're actually doing it. So maybe we can we can discuss that in a little bit more detail here as we get going. All right. Well, jumping right into this, uh, guys, what I'd like to do is I want to provide just a little bit of background uh, to help people understand, you know, kind of where you guys are coming from. So, um, Wes, maybe we'll start with you. If you could just give us give us the two minute version of your your background, your Sonics project, and um, just kind of you know don't get into the actual flying yet. We'll, we'll do that next. But I just want to make sure we understand where you're coming from. Okay. Well, you know, flying's always it's been something I've always wanted to do, but I didn't really you know I didn't really get the opportunity, have the money at the time, until I was about 45 years old. And at that point, I built uh, built an RP and uh, flew it for, I don't know, probably a year. And somewhere along that time, the first article on sports ad on the Sonics came out. So I fell in love with that, and I went back to building. Built the Sonics. And... Uh, I added up the time, and I think I'll include that airplane, about 80 hours. And then I looked up, I'm turning 50, and, you know, my house is falling down. I have three airplanes. So I I started feeling guilty, sold all the airplanes, and built a house. So, you know, time kept clicking on. And uh, finally, now I'm retired, and uh, so I picked up one next project and uh, built it, and I'm trying to work my way back. Okay. That's a two-minute version, or maybe yeah. just a minute. So, Wes, um, it, it sounds like you had a bit of a gap in there between when you stopped flying and then you started building. About how long was that gap? And then about how long was your actual 1X building process? Uh, the gap was about 13 years. I hadn't been up in 13 years. And the 1X uh, took about two years. But, you know, six months of that, life conspired. And uh, so it was really only about 18 months. Okay. All right. Well, still, that's that's a pretty good gap, and that's enough time to really kind of have things start to fade in your memory. Not that you know you forget how to fly; that never really happens. But you start to to get that you know that you're aware of just how rusty your skills and proficiency really is. When I first went back up, I couldn't believe how rusty I was, and uh, you know you like it's like a bicycle. 
never forget. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was quite a steep curve for me to. Uh, I'm still trying to come, you know, get back. Okay. All right. And Billy, um, same thing. Uh, give us a little bit of background just to kind of set this up. I uh, started flying in 1989, and uh, uh, I got my private private license, and I built a Fisher Horizon uh, during the nine and late 90s. And at the final stages of that being done, I bought a Aronka Chief, and I flew about 50 hours in that, and not finishing the horizon, the Fisher. So I got a divorce, so I had to sell all that stuff. So I really haven't flown anything regularly since early 2000s. I took a biannual uh, four years ago, and I took another biannual two years ago, and another biannual a month ago. Uh, so I have a total of probably eight hours of flying since early 2000s. And, uh, the plane I built took me two and a half years, uh, plans building it. And that was pretty steady every day. But, uh, I'm kind of coming to the point of realizing I don't have enough. I don't have enough training to fly this thing. I mean, I flew it. But it was scary. I, it flies great. I had no problem. It was just landing. Right. <laughs> but after after three attempts, I got it down without bending anything. And uh, I did have somebody do the first the first flight for me, and she told me, "Yeah, it's fine, all except that she couldn't pull the flaps on." And I figured that oh, she just didn't pull hard enough. So when I went up. I couldn't pull the flaps on either. I must have looked like a yo-yo up there trying to get the last notch of flaps in. But I finally did and got down. But I scared myself enough to know that I got to get some more training. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a good that's a good jumping off point. Um, Let's let's dig into the mechanics of, you know, getting ready to do this. And and what I want to start with is let's talk about what you guys did prior to the first flight to, to do prep. So we've talked about, you know, the things that a builder ought to do to get ready to go fly. <clears throat> there are references out there that can help paint this. But I want to I want to put a personal spin on this. I want to hear what you guys did to kind of prep and get yourself both skill-wise and proficiency-wise and then just sort of mentally ready to do this. Um, Billy, you already kind of started talking a little bit about this, but why don't you, yeah. why don't you go through what your prep looked like? Well, I've had the plane at the airport since July, I guess, or end of June. And there's still a lot of work to be done on the planes, even when the, once you get it to the airport. And because there's a lot of guys hanging out there, they're all giving you advice the whole time. Everybody's telling you, oh, it's easy, that you won't have any problem and that kind of stuff. But the I, uh, I walk through exactly what I'm going to do on this whole flight in my mind over and over again from for two months thinking about it exactly what i would do talking to other people who have similar airplanes kind of similar rvs and stuff 
everybody's giving me advice, but I watch every one of your videos. And when you don't have a passenger in your video, I'm watching those rudder pedals and I'm watching your your uh, stick movement. And I, I bet you I've watched every one of them a couple times. Uh, it's, a, it's a big help that you're doing that. I might suggest that you, I know it's a pain probably if you're just out having a joy flight, but yelling numbers out as you're going. I know you did it on one flight where you did everything, but I'm putting on the first notch of flaps. I'm putting on the second notch. I'm at this RPM. I'm at this speed, that kind of thing. That might help, but uh, I think I'll get it. I, it's it's just a matter of some some more training. Like all my training in the last four years has been in a Cessna 150. I haven't flown a tailwheel since I had my Chief, so... But I I did prepare. I did I did. There's a, several books, and William Wynn with his uh, conversion, he has a new manual about first flight and te- and and flight testing, which I read cover to cover several times. I mean, he goes into exactly what you're supposed to do, exactly what you're supposed to be looking for with your engine and monitoring it, and it's. Uh, it was a very good syllabus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you really kind of touched on two different points there. There are some prep activities for the airplane that are centered on making sure it's ready to go and making sure you're kind of ready to manage the airplane. And then there's a whole separate set of prep activities for you as the pilot in your own proficiency. And um, Right. Yeah, I think uh, you kind of got to give you know equal am- amounts of time to both of those. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Wes, again, uh, just kind of going back and forth here. Um, tell us about your prep. What I decided to do, um, uh, hooked up with old instructor. He was still, uh, still flying the champ, still training. So I needed a biennial, obviously. So, uh, so I contacted him, and uh, we started flying the champ. And like I say, I was rusty. So it took me eight hours of uh, flying the champ before he felt like I was ready to do a first flight on the wall. So I did eight hours with him, uh, got a fresh biennial, and then uh, my buddy, let me fly his RV for a while and do some pattern work. Did he get used to more sensitive controls? And he decided I was ready. So that was it. It took about, I think I took uh, seven weeks of training. You know, you can't do it all in one day. You, you, you almost have to spread it out to be able to soak it up and get reactive and uh, ready to fly. So mm. that was my, my prep. And then I came up with a uh, first flight, what I was going to do. And I kept ran, running it past my buddy, and he kept simplifying. You know, no, you don't want to do that. So basically, we got it down to a basic first flight. And uh, then it's a matter of waiting for weather. So. As soon as the weather cleared up, 
calm down, cooled off. I had to do it, and it was scary. It was scary for me too. So yeah. So you know, because you have it's like you say, you have the airplane. It's brand new, and you're rusty as well. So now it's kind of a double dose of anxiety. Here's here. You're like, oh my goodness, I gotta land this thing, and oh my goodness, is this thing landable? So, you know, kind of a double win. Right, right. Gary, um, you know, putting on your flight instructor hat, um, you know, I, I think there's some probably some good talking points here that we can we can tee up based on just what Billy and Wes said. What what are the first things that kind of jump out of you on the way they approach this? Well, the first thing I'd like to ask each of them, uh, Billy, how long was your first flight? Probably 30 minutes, 30 to 35 minutes. And Will? Wes, brother? Uh, my first flight was probably 15, maybe yep. a little longer, but uh, not much. Very short, yeah. And the reason I ask is because it sounds as if you were trying to come up with a pretty comprehensive syllabus there for your first flight. And I know that Jeff and I and the other guys have talked about this before. Uh, my, my personal preference would be to have a relatively short flight, somewhere in the range of that 30-minute time, assuming everything is going reasonably well for you, as you expect it and hope it will. Um, you know, I've kind of always advocated uh, just staying in the pattern, even if you had to fly a you know pattern plus 500 feet, for example, as I did in, in a controlled air, uh, airfield environment. Uh, do three circuits, land it, congratulate yourself, and make sure the wings haven't fallen off. Was that pretty much the gist of what you two did? Basically, what I did, I, my flight would have been less than 35 minutes if I landed the first time, obviously. But other than that, I did exactly what you're saying. I stayed a thousand feet over pattern altitude and just kept circling and test, you know, feeling the plane out, seeing if I could slow it down and whatever. And then I had the flat problem, which was, uh, the high anxiety part of my whole flight. And probably speed related as well. We've all known that, uh, the Sonics flaps, the, the final notch gets to be very, very difficult with excess speed. And right. And I only have the two flaps that, they call out in the plans. I only had like the 10 degrees and the 30 degrees. I don't have that intermediate one, which I should have done, I guess. But that was another part of the problem. Yeah, I did do an intermediate notch myself. But, you know, that's beside the point. So it sounds pretty much you did, you know, you eventually ended up trimming the process down for the first flight. Kind of what we pretty much did. You know, you take off. Uh, you assume if the initial climb out's going good, you try to stay in the pattern. Maybe make three laps around there. Uh, and then come in for your, your first landing and hoping everything works out in Greece as well. I think the important part is not to overreach on the first flight. I think that the anxiety level is too high uh, to really be able to, to tune in to what the aircraft is really doing anyway. You're going to certainly know gross things, you know, if the trim is grossly off, if the wing is really heavy compared to the others. Uh, but the stuff that you're going to need to really tune in later on during the course of the 40 hours as you're flying off your, your required time, uh, it, it takes time to become attuned to the aircraft, to be able to feel what it's doing, to get really uh, insightful information. So I think the first goal of a first flight is just simply to make sure the engine's going to run 
there's no significant adverse yawing and aileron or wing control issues. Uh, make it short, quick, simple, and you know, come down, have the congratulation beer, and then you know that day or later the next day, start going through the aircraft and making sure uh, everything is still snugged up, no leaks, no chafing, and all the usual stuff that you're going to need to do throughout the uh, the 40-hour test flight phase. Yeah, that's. I think that's um, very good advice, Gary. Uh, we've talked about it before, but sometimes, I don't know, sometimes when you're listening to your hangar neighbors and you're trying to incorporate advice from lots of different sources, suddenly you start having a, this, this wealth of ideas and you start building that uh, to-do list and it gets longer and longer and longer. And Wes, I think the advice you got about simplifying things and, and scratching things off your list that's excellent advice. You want to keep it simple. And uh, I think that that was, a, that was excellent. Yeah, I agree. We, uh, all I did was uh, took off, uh, climbed to the thousand feet above pattern altitude, uh, flew four laps around the uh, airport boundary, and uh, came in and landed. Mm-hmm. Right. You did four laps? <laughs> Minutes? I think you have a pretty fast little plane. Well, it was four laps, not around the pattern. It was uh, around the uh, the airport perimeter. So yeah, it was uh, it was flying pretty good. So Gary, um, I want to I want to get back to a couple of things that that both Wes and Billy uh, talked about, and this is again going back to your CFI hat. Um, there's this idea that you want to get yourself ready to to make this first flight. But, I mean, again, as a, an experienced instructor, what do you think the right level of effort should be to really get yourself ready? How do you, how do you know if you're getting it right or, or you're not? Well, you know, hindsight's a killer, right? Hindsight. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, your recent currency. Um, my big concern with both these guys listening to what they were telling me, they had an extended period of absence from flying. And sure, we, we have some of the, the, the mental aspects that are still of flying ingrained is. Uh, but as Wes was trying to say, you easily lose the psychomotor finesse that goes along with and required in that as well. I myself, if I go 30 days, I find myself getting really kind of slow and, and what I would consider far behind uh, the aircraft than I might normally do. I'm not going to say it's dangerous or anything like that, but I, I can certainly notice things in myself. Uh, I just don't think I'm quite as sharp. I'm not quite attuned. I'm not anticipating as much as I would normally do uh, with a 30-day absence, much less you know 20 years. I think with this, uh, people need to be really cognizant um, that that's a long period of time. Right. And Gary, um, it's interesting because when you're really on your game and then you start to slip a little bit, you can feel how much you're losing. But th- the, the more you get away from it, the more your ability to diagnose your own level of rustiness and proficiency starts to go. You kind of know that you know you need some work, but you don't realize maybe just how far you've kind of come off of your peak performance. It's kind of that insidious little, you know, double-edged piece of, of stepping away from something. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it sounds like they, they started doing the right thing and started seeking uh, some more dual instruction, trying to find something that might be comparable, as we discussed before, with the uh, light sport aircraft uh, and just in general how light the controls are, you know, the champ versus something like uh, Wes going back to the RVs, his buddies letting him play with those. That was helpful. Uh, I kind of went to the extreme and started flying some uh, uh, pits uh, by wing aircraft for a few hours before I took my Sonics up and, and Sonic seemed awfully tame compared to the pits. So that was, that was a pleasure and a joy. Uh, but yeah, you have to really think carefully about what you're going to do, especially if you've not ever had any, light sport aircraft time uh the controls and the feels are just so far different than a certified aircraft that i think it's easy for a pilot to get themselves in trouble yeah and i think that there, there's a struggle and, and wes you can jump in and and add to this in a minute there's a struggle inside of you you know you need to get yourself proficient but at the same time you don't have access to an airplane that you can just jump in and go fly whenever you want to get proficient. You're either renting an airplane, you're paying an instructor to uh, to do some dual, you're bumming a ride with a friend. It's inconvenient and it's difficult because it's not your time, your airplane, your dollar. You know, you have to rely on others. At the same time, you kind of have to hold yourself to a strict standard and say, you know what, it, it's, it is very inconvenient and and it's not going to be nearly as much fun and, and, and easy as it will be in three months when I'm flying my own airplane. But I got to buckle down. I got to find a way to make it all work because you really only get one chance to get yourself proficient to knock the rust off before you go do that first flight. And Wes, you know, when you kind of look back at your own train up process, you know, you probably have a little different view now looking back on it than you did at the time you were going through it. Yeah, right. It's, you know, you have to ask yourself, why are you building this airplane? And the reason I want to build a Sonic or a 1X is just so I can have that airplane that I can pull out day after day and uh, be proficient. But obviously, you know, building up to the first flight, you don't have that airplane. So, you know, looking back, what could I have done to and I really don't know. You know, the mechanics of, of flying a tail dragger airplane is obviously the same. It doesn't matter, you know, a lot which tail dragger. But, you know, the control feel is, is uh, of course, drastically different. But I already knew that from my Sonic days. I knew what to expect. But, you know, was I ready? You know, no, you know, I don't know how I could have gotten more ready unless I could have found somebody in the, uh, you know, in the neighborhood with a two place Sonics that would, uh, you know, let me fly with them. And uh, I didn't have that. So it just came down to, uh, you know, everything I thought was as good as it could be. It was scary, but, you know, it wasn't too scary. I landed enough times that, you know, I knew I could I could probably get it on the ground. I knew I'd use too much runway. I knew I'd probably come in hot and high, you know, but but I had a mile-long runway, so just, uh, you know, be patient. You'll get it on the ground. Right, and, and just 
Wes, just to make sure that, you know, we, we leave people with the right takeaway on this. Um, do you think that your outcome would have been quite a bit different had you trimmed down all your train up to just, uh, you know, one or two flights in the champ, you know, just enough to get your instructor sign off, maybe one uh, right seat ride in the RV and then jump into the 1X? How do you think that would have affected you? You know, I couldn't have done it. It took me the full eight hours in the champ uh, before, you know, and it, some of that was some pretty good crosswind training, but it took me a full eight hours just to get, just to get comfortable. And I was still was not comfortable bringing the, you know, bringing the champ into like a, my instructor's field is a 3,000 feet exhaust. I, I didn't feel comfortable with that at all. You know, I did it a couple of times, but one time I had to balk. So, you know, it took me the full eight hours. And then, of course, when I flew the RV, it, it was much easier than the champ. I mean, if you've flown a champ, you know, it's, it was work. Uh, I didn't look forward to those one-hour training sessions. But... I mean, I had to do something, and that seemed like the best option. So I just kept flying. You know, my instructor said, I think you're ready. Now, Billy, um, you already said that, you know, your train up was quite a bit shorter. And uh, I take it from your initial comments yeah. that you probably think that maybe, you know, it should have been a little longer and, and you're going to do a little more before you continue flying. What do you think the right mix for you should have looked like? Well, actually, two weeks before I did my first flight, a guy from Maryland has a who just finished a, a Sonics a Turbo a PW Sterling branded. He came up and gave me a flight in his, and I got the I got to you know control it in the air. I didn't land it or anything, but I I knew what to expect. But I do know that four hours or three hours in a one fifty. With in the last two years was not enough time to to be able to fly this thing comfortably, so uh, I'm going to look for either somebody to fly off the 40 hours, and while they're doing that, I'm going to get training or whatever in a champ or something somewhere. I got to find. It. I'm not uh, really sure where I can get that done, but uh, yeah, don't ever do the thing I did. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that, you know, a lot of people have done their first flights, and a lot of people have been in a similar situation where, you know, they're not as proficient as they would like to be. They, they, they've done something to get themselves ready, but maybe not as much as they would have wished. And they have successfully done it and lived to tell the tale and, and lived to continue to build their proficiency. But we're not talking about kind of what's possible we're really trying to come up with a set of recommendations and best practices. And so I think the takeaway from both you guys and, and your experiences is, you know, really be honest about what it's going to take to get you comfortable based on your level of proficiency. And that may be more than you think. It may be more than just a couple of flights here and there. You may have to really work at it. You may have to, you know, put in the effort to line up those flights and get that stuff done. And you may have to start this well in advance. But it really is important, and it really is worth it. 
You're right. It is very important. And uh, I've learned a big lesson. Like I said, it's uh, if you would have asked me when I finally taxied that to my hangar, if there was a barnstormer representative there, it would have been on there. Right. And that's uh, <laughs> that's the, the biggest of overreactions. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't come to that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> it took a day or two to get back in the uh, right frame of mind. So, Gary, let's talk about the training process again. We we have covered this in a couple of different capacities, but I want to make sure that we we really point out what we as experienced Sonics pilots, what we really think the moneymakers are when you are brushing up your proficiency in anticipation of jumping into a new Sonics. Well, it's something I've stressed over and over and over again, uh, which I find is been a general fault in most of our pilot populations is their comfort level and experience in slow flight. Um, you know, everyone kind of zips around the airports and they fly pretty fast, uh, but very little time do we ever spend at the very bottom of the regime. Uh, you know, minimal control of their airspeed, you know, on the verge of stalls or actually, actually in stalls. Um, and that's where I've always been, tried to spend a lot of focus when I was teaching with students was, was stall awareness, stall recovery, spin awareness, and even spin recovery if, if they were inclined to go that far. It was not a requirement for private pilots at that time, but it was always something that I offered them. Yes, and Gary, like you just mentioned, we're all pretty comfortable flying at normal speeds, and the Sonics and the 1X are pretty speedy little airplanes anyway. But the problem is that if you are not mentally and and like you said, the your motor controls are not ready to fly the airplane slower, what are you going to do? You're not going to fly the airplane slower. You're going to fly the pattern faster. You're going to fly final faster. You're going to flare faster. And as we talked about in our, our, our um, I forget which episode it was. It was one we were talking about takeoff and landing techniques. Um, if you're going to have a problem on landing, uh, it is probably going to be a result of coming down final with excessive speed. And so that's the exact position you're going to put yourself in inadvertently because you're just not comfortable getting the airplane slowed down. But it's great if you want to win the Tigger Award, isn't it? Well, you know, there are other ways to win the Tigger Award. <laughs> you don't have to just necessarily be too fast on final. You can just be a bonehead. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. You know, I find that a lot of people, you know, if, if if Captain Mike was here with us, you know, he flies aircraft and they pretty much fly by numbers because they, they really know what they are and they're calculated based on their weights and, and yada, yada, yada. You know, I find that with these smaller, lighter aircraft, uh, these numbers can really lie to us and get us in trouble. And I think we've seen that over and over again. Um, I even see it in my current aircraft, too, at times. Uh, I might be doing something, you know, turning a base or base to final, and, and I can feel that aircraft give way. Um, and it's easy instantly for me to recover before my passengers ever notice it. And I kind of glance back at the airspeed again and say, did, I, my, did my speeds get too low? And many times the speeds are what you would think would be more than adequate. Yet for some reason, the aircraft just wasn't quite flying as as safely and as strongly as, as I had expected it to. And so that's the reason I always push the, the slow flight characteristics, getting really, really used to what the aircraft is trying to tell you 
and, and you can catch and recognize and recover from a stall before one ever even looks at you sideways. And that's what I really encourage people to try to do whenever they go up with a CFI is find someone who really likes to, to fly in that kind of regime. And Gary, there, there's a parallel to when you're learning to fly and you're not quite sure about how to coordinate your rudder usage. You know, it's kind of the, the joke as a flight instructor. You wake up from a nap and you start yelling, oh, more right rudder. You don't really know what's going on, but you know they mm-hmm. need more right rudder. As you are developing that feel and that finesse in the airplane, you start to become aware of when the airplane is uncoordinated. Before then, you're just sort of lumbering along and you don't even don't even realize what's happening. After you develop that rudder awareness and that coordination finesse, you can feel it yourself. And you think, man, how did I ever not be, you know, be able to pick that up and how could I just ignore it and, and lose sight of it? Well, it's because, you, you know, you're not there mentally. You're, you're just, you're still a little bit behind. Slow flight is the same way. When you're not proficient, you don't realize how many of those cues that you are, are failing to pick up on. As you get proficient, suddenly everything clarifies, it simplifies in your mind, and these things just jump right out at you. That's the value of proficiency. Now, we've probably all heard of the axiom, too, that practice makes perfect, but really only perfect practice makes you perfect. And, and that's where you really need to really hone in and concentrate. It's not necessarily going out and doing the same thing all the time if you're not doing it absolutely correctly. Yeah, I know, Gary. Um, I've been working on that Tigger, and I still haven't got it right. So I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> you guess what our Tigger award is? They probably have some blank stares on their face. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, guys, uh, <laughs> the Tigger Award is something uh, a bunch of us Sonics flyers kind of get together. And as we watch our buddies come into land, you know, usually you only you make your worst landing when you've got a thousand people watching. You know, no one, no one's ever watching when you squeak them in. And so, whoever happens to bounce the most times in the landing gets the Tigger Award for the for the event. <laughs> Well, I would have won that. one of these videos. Yeah, I, I did. And, you know, and what makes it hurt even more is the, the video of them on the ground. And they're all laughing and pointing at me. That, you know, that leaves a mark right there. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. Last yeah. Word. No, actually, um, it's good to have a support network. Um, it's good where we can talk about our mistakes openly and we can own up to them because that's the kind of thing that's going to make us better. It's going to make us safer. And if we can pass that along to somebody else, uh, it makes it worthwhile. And it gets us all too. Great. <laughs> all right. So Wes and Billy, I want to, I want to go back to the day of the first flight. And I want you to kind of think, think about what happened. And I want to, I want to cover those surprises, you know, like perceptions that you had, things that, you know, didn't quite go right. You know, we talked about not being able to put the flaps on, but but there's a few other little things that are probably still relatively fresh in your mind. And I want to see if we can draw some of those out. So think about it for a second. And um, I want to I want to just hear some of those surprising things that you remember. Guys, anything come to mind? There's not much that I can say. I mean, I've been flying weekly. I pretty much knew what to expect, but as 
everyone does when they when they try to land one of these airplanes. It's a you know a sonic design. You're going to come in you know too hot and uh, too high. You're going to flare too high, and uh, and I did, and it left me in the flare a long time. But you know it also gave me time to find the ground because I had to keep ratcheting. The airplane down towards runway because I was way too high. But, uh, you know, it had a heavy left wing, uh, needed left rudder. But other than, uh, you know, you really just have to, uh, you know, kind of land it like you would any other tailwheel. So the, the big thing is, of course, the Sonics is still flying in the, in the three-point attitude. I wouldn't you you know you're you're never quite used to that if you've been training in a champ. If you ever make you ever get it, you know, into the player, you're gonna land. Uh not so with the Sonic. So you have to be prepared not to balloon, which I've done since. Kind of embarrassing. But uh, you know, nothing too bad for me because I had been flying weekly for seven weeks. I flew the RV. And uh, I'd flown a Sonex before, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything too bad. I've had a couple of since, it's a couple of landing since that I wish I could uh, erase, but uh, nothing too bad the first day. A balk. I flew my first, uh, my first flight twice. Uh, flew it once, came in, made a decent landing, and we pulled the cow, looked for any problems. There were none. So uh, we put the cow back on, and I flew the first flight again, and, uh, of course, my landings were worse the second time, but uh, nothing horrible. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, Wes, you talked about the, um, you know, the three-point attitude being flatter than kind of a, a really, really hanging on the prop, um, you know, max angle of attack attitude, and... In Asonics, that that's pretty different. You know, I call it, you know, a tail hooker. Because when you really get the nose up there, you really get that almost that full stall attitude going. That tailwheel is quite a bit lower than the main landing gear, and you're going to touch tailwheel first. And there's nothing really wrong with it. It kind of thumps the main gear back on unceremoniously. So you know, from a from a grease it on perspective, it doesn't really work as well. But you realize that there's kind of the ideal ground stance attitude that you want to aim for in, in your three-point. Um, and and that's going to be a little different than what the airplane is capable of delivering to you. And that's where a little bit of time in the seat before your first flight to really burn in that three-point stance can pay off. Unfortunately, it does take a little while to kind of get that, you know, in your memory and really kind of incorporate it. And if you just do, a, you know, a couple of five-minute taxis, you're probably not going to spend enough time in the seat to really to really internalize that. But taxi test, uh, that does help. Because I've spent quite a bit of time running up down the runway at, you know, 30 miles an hour trying to get the feel of, uh, you know, what's it going to feel like on rollout. Mm-hmm. And that does you get the uh, three-point added. Right. But, you know, sometimes I think maybe it's even better to, uh, you know, go ahead and hit the tailwheel just a little bit early and, uh, you know, sort of flatten out and kill the lift when the mains hit. But, you know, maybe that's just uh, me. Yeah. 
after all, almost an expert I had. She's 100 landing. <laughs> Kidding, obviously. Okay. All right. Billy, uh, I think you had some observations also. Yeah. Um, well, when I first took off, obviously, I thought I knew it was a sensitive elevator on this thing. And when I took off and uh, got, you know, got to flying speed and pulled back, it was way too much pullback. So it was, you know, almost a vertical freaking thing until you pushed it over. And then flying around, I, I wanted to go through slow flight and all that stuff. But with the flap situation, I got so flustered. I didn't even really try. I, I, I slowed it down. I slowed it down to 80 mile an hour. And I, I flew with the one notch, notch of flaps I could get on. But uh, when I went in, I decided then that because I couldn't pull that last thing of flaps, I would do a really long final and try to set up correctly. And uh, I came in. I was going about 80, which was too fast. And then I flared too high. And then I bounced once and I turned sideways off the runway, over the grass on the side of the runway and gave it full power and went around again. And uh, that time I slowed it down to about 70 on final. And I still flared too high again, bounced a couple times, but was able to save it, save it. But it got squirrely on the rollout. So the whole thing. With those, with not being able to feel the right attitude for when when I'm flaring and too high got me all screwed up, and uh, I th I think a lot of it's because of the flap situation. I've since ordered the actuator, which I'm putting in tomorrow, so I have a uh, electric flaps from now on. Mm -hmm. But that was my whole thing. Yeah, and that's probably worth uh, spending a few minutes when you mentally rehearse your your plan. Is uh, let's talk through the things that might go wrong. Um, you know, what if I can't communicate with my ground crew? You know, okay, well, maybe uh, maybe I adapt my plan so I don't need to. You know, what if uh, the engine is not acting the way I want? What am I going to do? How am I going to how am I going to you know fly the pattern and return? What if you know the the flaps won't come off on, or if you put them down and you can't get them back up, you know, just kind of think through some of these little things. And I have a, a story from my own first flight, you know, years ago, I had an EIS that um, I used on the, on the first Sonics and the EIS has all of the sensor wires um, and it has all like the power wires and the tack and all that and two big fat cables. So I had a big cable bundle of sensor wires and I had another big cable bundle of all my other EIS wires. Well, these two passed very close to the antenna coax coming out of my comm antenna. And I didn't realize this, but every time I would key the mic to make a position report or whatever, the RF energy coming out of my, my radio, coming down that feed line to my antenna, would kind of just bleed over into those very sensitive thermocouples and things like that. And I would see it as a spike in RPM or the engine temperatures would change. And so I'm not staring at my EAS the whole time. I'd make a radio call and then my normal scan would bring me back around and the numbers are changing and they're, and they're going up and down. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I've got a problem with my engine and look at the temperatures are going crazy here. And at the time, 
that was very distracting to me on that first flight. It didn't take long to figure out, hey, wait a sec, it only happens when I key the mic. However, thinking through, what am I going to do if the panel goes dead or I can't, can't do this or that, that mental exercise will help you sort of process that information in the heat of the moment and get past it quicker. Because I did find it extremely uh, just distracting. I made a very quick lap around the pattern set up for a landing, and I cut it short because I was a little worried about what I was seeing on the engine. So that's my pitch for mental rehearsal and just trying to identify some of those things you know, before you actually go fly it. Jeff, I think we've seen this numerous times. I've experienced very similar things myself. Mm-hmm. And I think as we're building our aircraft, especially now that we're dealing with uh, advanced panels and EFASs and uh, multifunction displays, it's very easy to get some of these sensors uh, incorrectly set up so that it will skew all of your results. And you can, you're right, you can get very transfixed on some of these instruments, especially since you're worried about the engine anyway in your first flight. Uh, but kind of keep in the back of your mind that, you know, first of all, is the engine still running? Does it feel right to you? Sure, if you have a, a really whacked out sensor, you have to pay attention to it, but don't really get to the point where it distracts you from and end up doing something honestly fatal. Um, you know, fly the airplane, feel the airplane, feel what it's doing for you. Um, and, and just take everything kind of with a grain of salt. If you need to make it just that one lap instead of your playing three laps on your initial flight, that's fine too. But yeah, these, these advanced panels can really uh, uh, put the fear of God into you uh, unnecessarily. Right, and we see that all the time with your programmable alarms. You know, you, you set it all up, or maybe you don't set it up, but uh, when you actually make your flight, now you got the alarm just screaming at you the entire time. So you ought to at least just kind of brief yourself, what am I going to do if I see these alarms? And it might be as simple as, I'm going to mentally block it all out, and I'm just going to fly the airplane until the prop stops turning. That's after you shut it down when you're back up. Right. Right. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's start drawing some conclusions here. So... What I, what I want to do is I want to identify a short list of things that you guys feel that you did really well and would be good uh, advice to others. And then we'll do the same thing with maybe things you didn't do so well that you wished you would have as advice to others. So, you know, what went well and then maybe what, what didn't go as well and you should have done. And then we'll kind of, you know, wrap it all up with presenting that advice to someone who's going to follow in your footsteps. So, Billy, I'll, I'll start it with you. Okay. Well, what I did really well was prepare the airplane for that first flight. I did all all kind of testing. I had it on a, uh, a two-minute test on a hill, full blast, 2,900 RPM static, and checked for two minutes straight and checked every instrument, make sure everything was in the green, everything was working. And I figured if I could do that, I would be up to over pattern and altitude and be able to come back. And that I went over the plane for days before before that first flight. And the day of the first flight, I didn't do I knew everything was done and I didn't do anything. I just got up early, went out to the airport, taxied it out, made sure I was warm and went. And that's where everything went wrong. <laughs> I should never have done that, but. 
as far as my my preparation of the plane, I thought I did a, a really good job. Okay. All right. And then uh, as far as things that you would have changed were you to do it again and that you're going to offer as advice to others, you know, hey, don't do this, you know, do it differently. Um, how does that? Yeah. yeah the, it's all, it's all, tra- it's all training. And on my end, that's all, the whole problem is training. So it's very simple. Okay. What do you think the ideal training scenario looks like? I don't know yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely going to get some tailwheel time from somebody. I don't know who. Like I said, I'm hoping they, maybe anybody listening to this podcast is going to hear my cry here and come and give me a ride in theirs or I'll go get a ride in theirs and get some pointers with them. But, uh, yeah, I don't I don't. Don't do what I did. That's all. <laughs> yeah, and something with a good power to weight ratio too. You're going to want to feel, you know, the torque. You're going to want to feel the acceleration, and you know, flying in a 150 is good for a lot of things. But um, you know, you have a high power to weight ratio in your airplane, so you need something that's going to replicate that. Right, and at, I was really pleased with the way the airplane flies. I mean, it, once I got used to the sensitivity of it. It's like a sports car. I mean, it it really goes. I you know I I was going 145, 150 miles an hour at 2800 RPM, and I was I was moving, and I, it it really it really is rock solid. But uh, we'll see. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we'll just summarize that as uh, really think through your training and your proficiency plan, and uh, don't shortchange it. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. Okay. All right. Great. Wes, how about you? First, the uh, the good and then the the, the bad that you're going to recommend people not do. Well, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time doing ground runs on the engine, uh, which some people would advise you against that. But I did have the engine fully instrumented. So I was careful not to over tamp the cylinders. And, uh, you know, the solar head cam and keep everything green. But I did, you know, I literally I tied the airplane to a tree and ran the engine and ran full throttle and, uh, you know, backed off and, you know, jerked the throttle around a lot more than I would actually do in flight. Just, you know, I just needed to assure myself that the engine was not going to die. So, you know, that that gave me some reassurance and I think was probably worthwhile. Uh, so that was, that's something that I would kind of recommend, at least know. You know, know that the engine's probably not going to die. And then, uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the things I, I should have done that I didn't do is uh, I listened to Joe Norris's, uh, his, what did he have? He had, he had a webinar on first flights. And one of the things that he said you should do during the first flight is to simulate a balk landing. Uh, I should have done that, and I didn't. 
because sure enough, on my second first flight, I had to balk the first landing. And uh, I probably should have tested that at altitude, and I, I didn't. So that's one thing I would suggest is even though you need a very simple first flight, one thing is uh, go ahead and, you know, bring it back to idle and uh, be sure you can apply full throttle and have the results you expect. So that's uh, what else? You know, I don't know. I don't know if there's any way relieve the anxiety of the first flight. It's like I say, and you know, the airplanes never flown. And uh, I hadn't flown much in a lot of years, but uh, if I could have found somebody to do the first flight, I would have. But, uh, you know, I asked my buddy, and I said, you know, he's a multi-thousand our pilot and an instructor and everything else. And I said, hey, you sure you don't want to do this? And he said, well, I want to, but you need to. So, so I don't know. To get back to your point, that's about all I can say. I did right. I, the airplane was as prepared as I could make it. And uh, the only thing I did wrong, I probably should have, you know, planned my first flight a little bit better. Yeah, and I think that's a fair assessment. If you go through um, a, a procedure where you think through what you're going to do, you, you formulate a plan, and then you try to stick to that plan as much as you can, and then when it's all said and done, you look at it and go, huh, how how'd that really go? Well, it went pretty good, but I probably should have planned it even more. I probably should have thought through more scenarios. And, you know, now I kind of know the areas that maybe I glossed over. Well, there's a takeaway in all of that, and that's just to underscore the the value of really putting the thought in ahead of time, the value on really going and getting proficient. I mean, really proficient to the point that you're like, okay, enough already. I am so ready that I don't need any more of this. It's redundant. You know, if you get to that point, there's value in that. And that's not saying that you have to do all that, but if you don't do enough, you're going to, you're going to feel it. There's value in over-preparing the airplane, really going over it, really testing it, you know, putting as many hands and eyes on it as possible to really build that confidence. And then there's value in mentally rehearsing and planning your flight and all those what-if scenarios. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you're going to be day of. So I think that's the takeaway is it is going to be difficult to do all of those things. And you're probably going to have, you know, comments when it's all done that says, yeah, okay, I did, I did pretty good, but I could have done better. Don't let that keep you from putting the effort in up front to actually go through it. Make yourself do it. You're going to benefit at the end of it. There's one other thing that uh, uh, probably should mention. I think I did right. And that was uh, go to the proper airport for a first flight. The airport I chose has three mile-long runways. And, uh, you know, it's a one section or one square mile uh, airfield. So it's basically at any time, if the engine would have quit, I should have been able to at least put it down on the field. So you hear what I'm saying. It's not... Go to a big, long, the biggest, loneliest airport you can find. 
Right, and sometimes you, you're just stuck with what you got. You know, that, that may be the situation that you find yourself in. However, many times there's the one that is super convenient, and there's another better choice that is slightly less convenient. Go ahead and just buckle down, take the slightly less convenient one if you need to, to take advantage of all the benefits that it's going to bring you. It doesn't have to be forever. Even if you just have a short-term arrangement worked out and then you move it over to its permanent home, it's worth the effort, if nothing else, to give you options and to help simplify things mentally for you and build that confidence for your first few flights. I agree. I thought of another thing also that I did great, and uh, and that was hiring a uh, professional first-time pilot because it took, it took that part of the equation out when uh, she said it flew just like a Sonic. So, right. If I ha- hadn't seen the thing fly first, it would have been even worse, I think. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Because you wouldn't have had the confidence. You'd have been wondering, you know, is it all me or is the airplane at fault? You have nothing to compare it to. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, our buddy Mike Singleton has done a whole bunch of first flights. I mean, more than a dozen. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of value in him doing that for other people. Not that that's, you know, his thing. He just, he's a good guy and he helps out whenever he can. But when you get a certain level of familiarity, you can very easily sort out, hey, that's normal. Don't worry about that. Or, no, that's a little off. Or, no, that's a big problem that you need to address before we do anything else. As a first-time builder, never having flown in anybody else's Sonics, and certainly not your own, you don't have any of that. And that's that's just one more obstacle that you have to overcome. And so why do that to yourself? You know, take advantage of resources in the community and do that. Right. And this this uh, woman that did this, she gave me a full report after she's done. She emailed me exactly what everything was doing, temperatures, speeds, RPMs, exactly how it handled. You know, she gave me a you know, two-page printout of exactly what she, you know – found out on her on the first flight. So that, that was, you know, confidence building. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. All right, Gary. So think back to, you know, your first flights, multiples, um, and listening to the stories here. Um, let's, let's leave everyone with just a couple of, you know, good tips for success in preparing themselves to go do this. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank both of them, you know, being honest and upright. I think we've all kind of been there and done that uh, on each side of that between not having personal proficiency or having uh, some doubts about the aircraft. Um, I, I think I know personally I, I really wanted to fly my first flights, uh, but I certainly understand and respect those who decide that they want to have someone else that perhaps has more experience to do the first flight. Uh, the last thing we ever want to have to do is, is hear of another news event going on in any particular aircraft or anybody we know. Uh, so kudos, Bill. That was a good, good choice in your case. Um, you know, first flights, you know, I, I don't think we ever get it right. Uh, we It's never as good as we want it to be. Uh, but what I, I find more consistently is that it comes out I would say maybe even perhaps better than we ever thought it was going to be. You know, as, as I've talked about before, 
you know, after you get that first circuit, you're kind of tooling up there, like, you know, five minutes later and the engine's still making lots of noise and the airplane's flying relatively straight. And, and you can take the time and moment to, to kind of pat yourself on the back, give yourself a good thumbs up and say, yeah, man, I did this. Um, I, I don't know that there's a, a better feeling uh, than something like that, building your own airplane. You know, some of us are much more industrious than others. You know, some of us have the ability to scratch build. I don't. Uh, but even putting a kit together takes a phenomenal amount of commitment and perseverance, uh, as well as blood, sweat, tears, and money, and everything else. And so anytime you can accomplish something like that on the first flight, even if someone else flies that first flight for you, uh, I think is just a spectacular achievement. Yeah, those are great points. And I think, uh, you know, I'm just going to reiterate the, the, the points I, I already made. Uh, take it seriously. You know, put the effort into it. it. It'll be worth it. When you have a dozen flights under your belt, you're finished with your 40-hour flyoff, whatever, three years down the road, you're going to look back and you're going to think, gee, I really love my airplane and I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, I got through that period. Um, and it's going to start to maybe fade in your memory the anxiety and sort of the uncertainty going into it. So don't use that as an example, you know, that we're going to set for others. We want to set them up for the easiest transition, the best chance of success, the most comfort, and then it's going to be the most enjoyable when they actually do it. So let's really focus on preparing ourselves, doing the right things for our airplanes, being honest, and this is where you know, getting, getting friends and, and peers to help us, you know, be honest about our own capabilities and the capabilities of the airplane. Do all that work up front. Yes, it's a pain in the butt, but it will pay off and it will set you up for successful flying down the road because you really only get one chance to really be that beginner and go through that transition. You're probably going to get through it one way or the other. We want to make it as efficient and as pleasant as possible and as safe as possible. Good points. So, Billy, um, I guess, uh, you know, back to that question about what the ideal transition plan looks like. Um, I guess that's something that you'll have a chance to sit back and, and kind of reflect on. And then uh, you can give us a follow-up at some point and say, hey, after my after I'm my well. initial experience, this is what I came up with. And, boy, it went great. I really am happy with the way it turned out. I hope that's right. <laughs> we're we're going to yeah. try. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I just got to get this actuator in over the weekend and I'll be good. You know, Billy, at the rate you build, though, um, yeah, by Monday morning, it'll be working perfectly. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, uh, Wes, Billy, thanks again for coming on. Like Gary said, thanks for coming and, and uh, sharing your stories. Sometimes sometimes there's a lot of value in just hearing what somebody else did and how, what they thought and, and what they went through. And, um, you know, our stories, they, they are valuable to those people that are going to follow behind us. So, and so we can help the next generation of pilots by sharing these stories. So thanks again for doing that. Thanks for being willing to come on the show and, and talk about it. Thank you. And, and keep those videos coming with a little more, uh, verbal, uh, 
Yeah, I'll do that. Knowledge of what's going on. I, sometimes, you know, <laughs> I just kind of get in my own my own uh, head. And, I know. But I need to do that more. So I will. I'll make it a point to, to just narrate okay. at various times. Thanks a lot, Jeff. By the way, I have one of your videos pulled up right now. Uh, Refining the German power table. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very interesting. It kind of confirms what I thought. Uh, it seems like the uh, true airspeed is uh, simply a function of prop speed huh? on a fixed pitch airplane. Yeah, to a large degree, that's true. So, yeah, I would like to. I'd like to say thanks to thanks for all the videos. I've enjoyed them. Good. Good. All right, guys. Well, as we wrap this up, uh, just a couple of closing uh, thoughts here. Um, Reclaw is coming up. Um, I know that the normal crowd is probably going to be a little bit smaller. You know, we are not going to make Reclaw this year. However, if you find yourself in the area around Texas, uh, it will be going on. And our buddy Carl will be down there with his family. If uh, you need some ground support, Carl and his family, they put on a nice little, uh, a nice little outing. You've got somebody who can make a beer run, uh, pick up some charcoal and some ice, and generally just kind of help keep things going. And if you're a member of the Sonics community, you will definitely be open, welcome with opened arms. So um, reach out, let Carl know you're going to be down there, and I'm sure he'll take good care of you. And then other than that, um, yeah, I'm looking forward, Gary, to next year for Reclaw. It's been a rough couple of years for us getting down there. Of course, 2020 is a big wash in a lot of ways. But uh, 2021 ought to be pretty good. Yeah, we've had some logistical problems this year for sure. And Billy and Wes, later on, if you guys decide you want to get really ambitious and you want to see what some spins are like, uh, Anasonics, uh, pull up one of my YouTube videos. I think it's called uh, Some Weekend Fun in Asonics. And you can kind of go. I've seen that. I've seen that. That's a good one, too. Yeah, it spins pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. All right, guys, for everyone else listening, you can find this episode on the web at sonicsflight.com, show notes at sonicsflight.com slash 77. And when we come back next time, uh, we are really going to get to one of those other topics I keep talking about, either the advanced aero injector or we'll do a weight and balance or we'll do a, the you know what engine topic, something like that. So we do have a few that are coming up. We're going to try to get them knocked out this fall. And, um, and then get on to, to the next set, probably early next year. You can subscribe to the show through your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Apple Play, iTunes, Google Play, uh, Stitcher, any of those uh, podcast apps. Uh, or you can find it directly on the webpage and just download it and listen to it there. And then, of course, if you need to reach us, you can find our email link on the website or send it directly to feedback at sonicsflight.com. So with that, Billy, good luck on your future training. Uh, Wes, keep those hours ticking up and look forward to hearing more about your flights uh, coming up here very soon. Okay, we'll do. Thanks a lot, guys. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight Podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember... 
you are the pilot in command. 